Well, good morning. Here we are in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in a series looking at uh, this particular writing and uh, just a tremendous story uh, that I love it. I love it. And I'm asking that if you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 8, and uh, we will get there in just a moment. But let me start by asking you a question about Amazon. Have you ever ordered something, something off of Amazon? Yes. And what you saw and what you got excited about and what you put your Visa card down for wasn't what you actually received? Did that ever happen? That happened recently, not too long ago. I had ordered this really cool wood holder kind of a deal that looked really stout and strong and it would hold a whole quart of wood. I got it in and it was flimsy and you pick it up and it just falls apart into pieces and it only held like a quarter, a quarter of a quart of wood. I'm like, great, now I have to send this whole contraption back. Maybe that's happened. Or maybe you went to see a movie. Ever seen a movie someone recommended to you and they're, oh, this is the best movie you've ever seen in your life. And you go and you see it and you're like, that was a complete waste of $9, you know? I'm not getting any recommendations from that person. Happened to me, you know, big fat Greek wedding too, sorry, not as good as one, enough with the Windex. It's Redbox, let's just get, get real on that. Or maybe a destination you went to and you thought it was gonna be one way, it turned out to be another. When I went backpacking recently with a couple guys up on staff, uh, Zach and Nate and Ryan and Kenny and myself. I'm the old guy with some younger guys and we're going up. Uh, and so we wanted a simple hike, you know, mainly just to be up there and enjoy it. So uh, there was a hike picked out out of a, one of the books on all the 100 hikes around the Northwest. It was at Lee Lake in the Cabinet Mountains outside of Libby, Montana. And I thought, perfect, it's like supposed to be like a mile and a half long, maybe two miles, and it's just this beautiful lake that you go to. And then we'd be there, set up the hammock, and hang out, you know? And so we get on the trail, we get out of the car. Of course, there was a guy who I happened to have dinner with the night before we left, and he told me, I don't know where you got any of that information from, but that is not how the trail goes. The trail, actually is really steep and there's times when you're on all fours grabbing onto rocks he's like i don't think i'd take a backpack on that trail <laughs> and so we went and we argued on the way there wondering was the forest service right was the book on the hundred hikes writer was paul my friend right i was going with paul paul smart well we get there we get out of the car we start hiking and immediately it's straight uphill and I mean, I'm going to tell on Zach, but Zach was out of breath big time. He said his backpack was too tight, but he was ready to have a heart attack. And here we are, we're going up the mountain and we are on all fours and we are with backpacks uh, and it's a little bit, it's a little dicey at places. And it felt like five or more miles and it was really two and a half straight uphill. We had to cross this river. Kenny has that big smile. That's actually not a smile. It was just frozen to his face because of the, of the river there. So we're wet, our boots are sloshing, but we finally make it up and it is amazing. It's an amazing place, Lee Lake, these huge rock walls surrounding the lake and the lake, that's what it looks like. Isn't that cool? I highly recommend. <laughs> you go check that out one of these days. Bring about 60 pounds on your back and have fun with that. 
How about with God, though? You ever expect something from God, maybe something from Him or something about Him, and what you get is different than what you expected? I mean, that can happen. It does happen. And sometimes we receive within our upbringing a concept of God, or maybe it's just in our culture, and we feel like God is a certain way, and He ought to behave in certain ways. You know, and then he doesn't do exactly what we thought. For example, we think God is all powerful and because of that, he'll always protect me and all of my stuff in every way. And then somebody breaks in and steals all your stuff. That's happened to me twice. You're like, uh, what, what's going on here? Or, or, or possibly you think, you know, if I obey God and I step out and I do what he says and I take a risk and I, I walk in faith that God is, is going to always bless me and provide the money I need, you know, and, and everything I need and just kind of that type of God. And then you find yourself in an unemployment line or a food stamp line. Been there, done that. And you're like, okay, this is messing with my thought of who God is. What do you do when those times hit your life? Do you leave your faith? Do you get mad at God? Do you feel cheated? Do you quit going to church thinking somehow that's going to do something? I'll quit giving, quit serving, quit praying. God didn't come through for me. Why should I come through for him? It's If I'm going to be devoted... It better have a payoff. And we say God keeps all of his promises, and he does. Amen. But what promises are they that you think they ought? In other words, what promises do you think God has made? Today we're going to look at Peter's expectations of Jesus. We're going to look at something that Peter was right on about God, but a little bit off. And we're going to look at how Jesus taught him and corrected him a little bit. Jesus turns out to be a little bit different than what Peter had expected. Peter had received these messages all throughout his life as a little boy that there would be a Messiah who would come one day and who would free us from the oppression, free us from the heavy yoke of, and the burden of Rome. And one day that would happen and he would make your dreams come through, come, come true. And in this, Peter is tested. We're going to look at it together. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Please open your Bible and let's read this together. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always want to know that. Do you? You know, if you're a boss... You're working at a company or a big corporation, and you go and you ask people that, what are, what are people saying at the water cooler about me? I mean, you may not want the answer, right? Well, witchy woman, or no, you're the Terminator, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty bold to even want to know. And Jesus wanted to know, not because he didn't know, but he wanted to see what was influencing the disciples. What's forming and shaping your understanding of God? What in the culture, what in society, what, what about the people, your friends and family? How is that shaping what you think about God? And the same is true with us, is it not? 
What's shaping your understanding of Jesus? What, what version of Jesus do you have? Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus, nice Jesus, mean Jesus, health and wealth Jesus, down and out Jesus. What version of Jesus do you have in your mind, in your heart? And where did you get it from? Who do people say that I am? And then in verse 28, they told him. He said, all right, you want to know? Here's who. John the Baptist. And some people are actually saying Elijah. And then others, one of the prophets. Now, all of those are actually good things. I mean, if anybody mistook me for John the Baptist, I'd be good with that. John the Baptist was a New Testament prophet. He spoke truth into people's lives. He pointed people to Jesus. He was an amazing person. Or Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. He was a prophet who's, who actually influenced an entire nation. He was a prophet that worked miracles. And some people said, that's Jesus. Jesus is a really good moral teacher. Jesus is maybe even a prophet who works miracles. And isn't that what our culture thinks today as well? So many people look at Jesus as this historical figure, that he was a good person. He was a person that had great teachings that you could learn from. And maybe even some of those miracles are true, and he, he, he's a prophet. People are saying the very same thing today. And then in Mark chapter uh, 8, verse 29, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, okay, that's what culture is saying. What do you say? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And here's the deal. Our answer to that question will determine the rest of your life. And if you think that's too dramatic, it's not. Because the way you answer that question, that determined the rest of Peter's life, how he answered that. That determines every disciple's rest of life when they answer that. And even if you're not a disciple and you say, I don't know, Jesus is a moral guy, he's a prophet, that, that answer will determine the trajectory of your life too. It's a simple question. Everybody in the book of Mark is asking, I mean, let's look at Jesus for a moment up to this point. Jesus had healed people that no doctor could heal. Jesus had provided food for people that nobody had enough wages to provide food for. He multiplied bread. Jesus had commanded demons. He had an authority that no other prophet had ever had before in the way that demons would have to flee when he would confront them. You see, Jesus had people's attention and people were talking and they were speculating about who he was. And so it was a question that at the very middle of this book, Mark chapter 8 is the middle of Mark's gospel because there's 16 chapters and we're in chapter 8. And this question is the actual pivotal point of the entire gospel of Mark. That question. Who do you say that I am? Everything we've looked at in this series has been pointing to that. If you're a high school student or a college age person wondering what will this next year be like, your answer to that question will determine how the next year plays out for you. If you're a mom investing your time, your labor, your love in, in the lives of your kids, your answer to that question will influence how you live this next week. 
If you're a guy or gal putting on your work boots every day, going to, don't, going to your job, showing up, your response will determine the direction of your life. And I'm not telling you what you need to believe. You can make up your mind on that, but I am stating a fact that what you believe matters and it will affect the trajectory of your life. So if Jesus was to ask you, what do you believe? What would you say? If you were to answer this question, I believe Jesus is dot, dot, dot. What would your answer be? Who you believe Jesus to be will determine who you become. Jesus says, let's be clear. This world looks at me as a miracle worker, a moral teacher, a good person, a person from history. But what do you believe? And in uh, verse 29, Peter answered. He said, you are the Christ. Now, remember, Christ is not a last name. It's not Jesus Christ. Mike, me, Jesus Christ. Please don't confuse the two either. Christ is a title. It was Jesus the Christ. And Christ literally means anointed. It means the anointed Messiah. And Messiah was the one who would come and deliver Israel out of her troubles. The one who would come and, and make those things that were wrong right. That would overturn injustice. That would bring a rule of truth and justice. The Jewish Messiah had been written about for centuries prophesied about specifically. And when Peter said it, Peter was the very first one to recognize it and state it. Here he is, a fisherman, and he got it. And it determined the rest of his life. That moment that would define his life. His answer to that question would shape his very existence the same way it shapes ours. Who you say Jesus is will determine who you are. But in Peter's answer, he also had this misconception of God. He did get it right. He spoke what was true. But in his answer, it was a little off, too. And here's, here's what Peter believed. Peter believed, because of, of the prophetic writings, but the way that those prophetic writings were interpreted because of the long oppression of political injustice in the life of Israel, they began to look at, the Messiah would come and make my life better now. The Messiah, when he comes, will come and overthrow Rome with might and aggression. When the Messiah comes, he'll come in the spirit of David, possibly with a sword in his hand. And so that was what Peter and the other disciples expected of Jesus, the conquering king now, God's deliverance from all external oppression. And of course, the scripture does point to that at the end of the age. Jesus will come and make all things right. But Peter's expectation of Jesus in that moment was that moment is now. And I'm all in, Jesus. Let's do this thing. I'll make you king. We've got momentum in the culture. We will get thousands of people to do a coup and we will install you as the king. And Jesus said... Don't tell anyone that, please, because that's wrong. That's not how it's going to happen. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. When people have a wrong concept of God, of Jesus, 
Even well-meaning believers, aren't there times when you wish they would just close the pie hole? Aren't there times when it embarrasses you the way that some people represent God or represent Jesus? And it would be so cool if I had the ability to just strictly charge them to not tell anyone more about him. But Jesus fills in the details. He connects the dots. He tells people more plainly than he had ever done before. In verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days later rise again. Jesus did not deny Peter's claim that he was the Christ, because he was, but he, he, he kind of turns it on him and he connects some dots that he had been missing as he had read the Old Testament that the Son of Man, which was a reference from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, about God coming as a Son of Man, who would be called also the Ancient of Days, and he would be that Messiah. But what Jesus wanted Peter to see is, I'm not the kind of king you think I am. I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think I am. Because I must suffer. And Peter's thinking, you're right, you're not. Because I expect a king, and I expect a king now. One that won't go to a cross, but one who will go immediately to a throne. And I'll go there with you. And Jesus says, no, in order for me to liberate you, in order for me to forgive your sins, in order for me to break the power of the wicked one, in order for me to overcome sin and death, I must suffer and I must go to the cross the way that a powerful and good king would do. I have to suffer in order to accomplish what I want to do for you. And if you have any hope of ever discovering who you really are, then you have to embrace the cross. The cross. And he said this very plainly in verse 32. So Peter does what any smart person would do, any passionate person would do. He rebukes Jesus. Jesus tells him this. He pulls him aside, he gets in his grill, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Say, no way. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter didn't like that kind of Messiah. Peter didn't expect that. Peter's thinking, man, I don't want a God who washes feet. I want one who kicks butt. That's what he's thinking. He's vehemently opposed to this idea of a suffering servant, a God who would come and suffer and die on a cross. The most brutal, the most disgraceful, the most humiliating, the most painful form of death in that time was death on a cross. God who would do that. I don't know about you, but I, I like the idea of a God who wants to make me happy, not holy. I like the idea of a God who will kind of cooperate with me and my plans. I like the idea of a God who only wants to bless me with good things to make my life better and easier. 
I don't like this idea of a suffering God who goes to a cross and who may also ask me to suffer and carry a cross. Peter wanted God to behave. I want that sometimes. Maybe you do too. I don't like the unknown. I don't like to suffer. Matter of fact, I don't mind telling you, I hate suffering. And I will never love it. Nor should you. Jesus steps up, gets into Peter's face, and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're my friend right now. I love you. You are my friend. But you are tempting me in a way that is not from God. You're trying to make me feel like the cross is a waste, that I'm entitled to be served, that suffering is unnecessary. Satan, get behind me. In the same way that Satan came and tempted Eve in the garden and said, you don't need to withhold, you don't need to deny yourself, you don't need to not eat of that fruit. You'll be like, God, just do whatever pleases you in this moment. Isn't after all, isn't God just here to make you happy? May I suggest to you that whenever you begin to think those thoughts of why me? Or I deserve to be happy. Or I hate suffering and it's a waste and my life is a waste because of my pain and suffering. That those thoughts are not coming from God but they're coming from the wicked one. And you need to stand up in your faith and say, get behind me, Satan. Begin to speak truth to yourself. Why not me? Am I exempt from the people around the world that suffer for their faith? Or when I think I deserve to be happy, why not? I really don't deserve to be happy, but God blesses me anyways with so many good things. God gives us things we don't deserve all of the time. And he is a God that heals. And he is a God that provides. And he is a God who protects. He is a God that is there for me so many times and I don't deserve it. Instead of me thinking my suffering is a complete waste of time, begin to see that God can use it in the gospel. God can use it to assist others, to comfort others, to help people see him more clearly. And sometimes well-meaning friends, well, let's face it, some well-meaning friends are just the voice of Satan in our lives. Trying to get us to, bless you, trying to get us to, trying to get us to not follow through on a commitment that we've made. You know what I'm saying? That thought, get rid of the baby who may end up with a special need. Hold on to the grudge towards the person who hurt you. They don't deserve your forgiveness. Take the shortcut in your integrity to get ahead. There's no need to wait until marriage to have sex as long as you love the person. God wants you to be happy now. Get behind me, Satan. Crosses are hard to carry. Crosses are hard to carry, but they have a purpose. And God has a purpose for them. Mother Teresa, who was well acquainted with suffering, well acquainted with engaging in people who were hurting, people and injustice in India, as she cared for the unlovable, 
the untouchable, the children, the dying, the hopeless. And she would enter into their world as a life calling. And here's what she said. Pain and suffering have come into your life. But remember, pain, sorrow, suffering are but the kiss of Jesus. A sign that you have come so close to him that he can kiss you. What if we exchanged this notion of a God we can box and a God we can understand and a God that will do what we say and a God who is only in it for my happiness? What if we could exchange that for this bigger understanding of tensions that happen in our faith that we don't always understand? And if, like Peter, we receive a new perspective that God does love us, he does heal, he does provide, he does help, and he also does things I don't get. And he also will allow me at times in my life to go through seasons of suffering. And it's for a purpose. And I don't have to love it, but it's to look behind it and say, God, I serve you because you're good no matter what. You're good, and I can trust you. And I don't have to say I'm going to pack my bags and leave you, but I'll actually run to you for the very grace I need to get through those Seasons because Jesus understands suffering. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus then teaches the entire crowd. Not just his, this interaction with his disciples and that very personal rebuke to Peter, but now he looks to everybody. And he says this, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So just picture Jesus just putting his arms around everybody. He said to them, if anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus is saying, I offer you something better than a moral teacher, better than just a miracle-working prophet. I'm offering you salvation for your soul, cleansing of your sin, an integration of your soul. So you don't have to lose it. You don't have to wonder who you are because I've created you and I want you to understand who you are, that you're dearly loved. And if we're willing to deny our own desires for instant gratification and be in charge of our own destiny and be in charge of our own life and think that we can in some way manage God or fit him into a box, but we begin to look at the cross instead and say, God, I don't understand all of what it means to pick up my cross and follow you, to deny myself that sounds really painful. I don't know that I like that. I don't know that that's the kind of God I want. But that's the kind of God that he is. And that's the kind of God he calls us to be as his followers and disciples. And in it and through it, he's saying, I'll show you your life. I will unveil your life. I will show you your purpose. And I will bring you into a destiny that's far better than anything you can accomplish on your own. Let me reread that last passage before we pray here out of the message translation, a little bit easier to understand translation of this same exact verse. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me 
has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? See, who you say Jesus is, what you believe about Jesus will determine who you become. Your answer to that question will define you, and it will direct you. And today, I just want to invite you to exchange maybe your perception of who you think God should have been or ought to be for who he actually is. A God who has both power and might and majesty, and a God who humbled himself by sending his one and only son to come to this earth to die for you, to go through a brutal death, and that all the sins of the world placed on Jesus at the cross so that he could make us whole and provide forgiveness. His death was not an end in itself. It opens up a new beginning. And when we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, it opens up a new beginning. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? Just as we pray, I want to read this verse to encourage you in 2 Corinthians. It says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Lord, we're asking that you help us look beyond, <coughs> beyond what is seen, beyond the way we think you should behave. Help us look beyond Lord, we pray that you will open up our eyes to see more of who you are. Give us faith, Lord, in our hearts to follow you when it's easy and to follow you when it's hard. To follow you into great blessing and to follow you into places that often include suffering. Help us to follow you, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves and trust that you're going to bring us into a place that's far better than we could ever achieve on our own. God, thank you for your love for us. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And that promise that we belong to you. Thank you. And in this moment, just with your heads bowed and as we're praying, for some, it's your moment where Jesus looks at you and he says, who do you say that I am? What do you believe? And for some of us, it's that moment to step across the line of faith and say, I believe you are the Christ. I believe, like Peter did, that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are God's son 
I believe that you died on the cross for me and you rose again for me. I believe. And if that's you, I want to pray with you and just invite you to pray this along with me. Jesus, I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are God's son who died for me. And I'm asking that you forgive me and cleanse me from all of my sin. God, I'm asking that you fill me with the power of your spirit. I'm embracing you today. Jesus, be my Lord and be my leader into the things I understand and even into the areas I don't understand. I receive that. I receive you today, Jesus. Just in this moment as we're praying, if that was your prayer, would you just lift your hand as your confession of faith to Christ? Amen. Amen. Good for you. Good for you. Good for you. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Amen. I see you. Yep. Yeah. Yes, Jesus. Lord, I pray for each one of my friends here and just ask God that you would let this be a pivotal point of a new beginning, a pivotal point to a whole new walk with you, God. I pray, God, for my brothers and sisters that you fill them with the power of your spirit and with the grace that sustains us to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, not on the temporary, not on the instant, but God, on the eternal. And I pray that you'd comfort and bring hope and healing. I pray, God, that you'd pour out your power in mighty ways that we would see your hand at work in each of our lives, we pray, as we walk into a greater fullness of who you are. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we thank you so much for finding North Church Sermons Online, and we hope that the message today brought value and enrichment to your life. If you'd like to participate in the giving of this ministry, there's a couple of easy ways for you to do that. You can text the word NORTH to 77977 and receive a text back and get your online giving set up in under 60 seconds, or else you can visit us online at northchurch.net and click on Give Online and participating in the things that God's doing right right here at North Church. We thank you so much for joining us. God bless.